The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 17th, 2017. Oh, such synchronicity. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Mike Pence went to South Korea and said out loud what we all knew to be the case. The era of strategic patience is over. Strategic patience out, haphazard impulsivity in. We sensed that, didn't we? In military speak, this would be no more strat pace. We're on to more of a hap-imp footing. Strategic patience. Ah, forget strategic patience. Strategic patience out. Slapdash haste. Indiscriminate impetuosity. That is now being embraced. Yeah, we gave you the strategic patience. Gave it a run. Now have a taste of our erratic recklessness. I said erratic recklessness, not erotic recklessness. I'm Mike Pence still, remember the conceit here? So erotic recklessness, that would be as if I took a one-on-one meeting with the former South Korean President Park, right? Yeah, but she's going to jail now. Now, look, I get it that the administration's pissed. No one wants a North Korean nuke somehow finding its way more than, you know, 180 yards out of a silo. The Sea of Japan has been this great IUD for these nukes so far, hasn't it? And the North Koreans, they want to signal they have missiles. They even have the extra large missile casings in their parade. They had the big parade and they had the containers for the missile. Doesn't Kim Jong-un strike you as the kind of guy who walks into the pharmacy and loudly asks, "Uh, do you have those? I believe they're called Magnum brand condoms. You know, I need an extra large casing. I require these. Meanwhile, in real life, his projectiles explode mere moments after liftoff. But in North Korea, you know, we're, we're constantly being told that there are no good options. None of the options are very good. I disagree. I'm the good options guy. I mean, remember Gitmo and how Mike solved Gitmo? That we release the prisoners, but we implant a tracking chip in them? This was the most genius idea. So genius that I'm sure they took it. There are, by the way, two ways to go with that. Either implant the chip in all the prisoners and tell them, or you pretend to implant the chip and tell them, or you implant the chip and don't tell them, or this is the best, just do it randomly. So you make the announcement, all right, you're all getting a chip, we're gonna know where they are. But with some guys, you tell them, we didn't really give you a chip. With other guys, you tell them, we really did give you a chip. And sometimes you're lying and sometimes you're not. So this will make no one who's released from Gitmo ever go back to the battlefield, or maybe it will make them go back to the battlefield and then we'll be able to track them. Anyway, that was Mike Solves Gitmo. This is Mike Solves North Korea. Here's what we do. One, you give them the Iron Dome. You know, the Israel anti-artillery, anti-scud defense system works pretty well there. And in fact, Israel has already offered to give South Korea the Iron Dome. Israel needs friends. Israel needs international buddies in the UN. South Korea would line up. The Israel ambassador to South Korea, Chaim Chosin, was quoted as saying at the Korea Institute, we are two small states which have very similar strategic situations. We give you Iron Dome technology. I love this name, Chaim Chosin, as the Israeli ambassador, because, you know, before it was the Republic of Korea or even the Kingdom of Korea, the Korean Empire, it was Chosun. That was the name of Korea. And in this way, both the Koreans and the Jews are the Chosun people. So you give them the Iron Dome, you rebrand it as like the Daewoo Dome, everyone's happy. Okay, so that takes care of the artillery problem. Well, what about the nuke problem? You know who doesn't like North Korea having nukes either? 
the Chinese, supposedly their biggest benefactors. So you tell the Chinese, here's our plan. You don't have to dissuade Kim Jong-un of anything. I say, just take over the country. Just take the country. We'll back you, right? You could do whatever you... I understand that the Kim Jong-un thing is hard. It's usually posited as, oh, it's so hard. How do you ever get a leader to give up his weapons? How do you give? How do you get a dictator to give up his artillery? I mean, it hasn't happened. Gaddafi kind of came close, but then look what happened to Gaddafi. It's even harder than that. We're not talking about how to get a dictatorial madman to give up his arsenal. We're really talking about If you look at actually Kim Jong-un's motivations, how do you get a god to give up his domain? He believes he's a god. They believe he's a god. So you'd have to convince the god to give up his kingdom. Put it on the Chinese. They're solutions oriented in this space. And you tell them whatever you want to work out with Kim Jong-un, but you're running the show. Their missiles are your missiles. The DMV, that could be all patrolled by the Chinese. You know, Mongolia, there's outer Mongolia. People use that as a punchline or synonym for a remote place. But you know, there's an inner Mongolia. It's inside China. The history of China is just gobbling up all these different regions and ethnicities and you call it China. Take North Korea. You could keep it named North Korea if it placates the god Kim Jong-un, but that could be yours. We don't get too freaked out. China has a lot more missiles that could reach us or period has missiles that could reach us. The North Koreans don't. So that could be China South. We got an iron dome for the artillery. We got uh, an Israeli ambassador whose name is truly on point. And I think in this way, Mike solves North Korea. On the show today, I spiel about a unified theory of Trump's latest policy positions. Don't overthink this one, folks. God knows Trump didn't. But first, Ariel Levy is a journalist, an essayist, now a memoirist. Her new book is The Rules Do Not Apply, except for this one rule. If Ariel Levy is writing it, it is worth reading. Right before Thanksgiving in 2012, the reporter Ariel Levy took a trip to Mongolia. She was five months pregnant. Life was going pretty well. But while in Mongolia, an economy based on uh, goats and yaks, I believe someone told her, she, she gave birth on the hotel room floor. Her baby lived for minutes. A year later or so, Ariel wrote about this in The New Yorker. It was quite literally, I think for a time, the essay that was most uh, sold to me as the thing I've got to read. I've never had that an essay be recommended to me so often, and I think this was a lot of people's experience. Now, from that and around that, and possibly based on that essay and that experience, she's out with a memoir called The Rules Do Not Apply. Thanks for coming on The Gist, Ariel. Thanks for having me. So I, I think I got it right. I think uh, an economy based on yak meat and goat <laughs> hair. It's not exactly. It had been based on that. Ah. But when I went, they were supposed to have their economy was supposed to quintuple over a few years time because they had huge, they still do have huge reserves of coal and copper. Right. But the boom didn't quite happen because of perfectly understandable resource nationalism and a, a history of communism. And basically, they have a different way of thinking about 
who owns what. So things got regulated in such a way that basically they regulated their boom away. Yeah. I do have to say, let's just talk about Mongolia. Is that such a bad thing? The history of countries that are basing their economy or have an economic boom based on uh, extractive yeah, uh, right. Industry doesn't seem yeah. doesn't seem that great for them. No, you look at Nigeria, you look I mean, yeah, no, there's a million examples. Yeah. Of- and so basically, you know, some small group of people get really rich. Did the Mongolians seem happy to you? They they seemed happier than I was. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> right. Ay, ay, ay. But then again, they got nominated for fewer literary awards afterwards. So. Well, that is a huge comfort. Yeah, I know. So I, what I did was, one of the things I did, I read the book, and I want to talk all about it, but then I read the original essay. Uh-huh. And it was interesting to me that there were little changes, some big changes, some organizational changes, but some phrase changes. Like at one point in The New Yorker, yeah. there's a reference to Genghis Khan, or I should say Genghis Khan, and that turns into Kubla Khan in the book. And I was wondering... like. What a weird thing to focus on. (laughs) I I mean, that is very particular. But why? So you went back. You wanted to make it better. Did you want to make it less New Yorker? Why do you think things changed? No, because I don't. I know exactly what you're talking about, although no one listening to this will. Oh, God, I don't know why I changed it from Genghis to Kubla. I think it might have been a word rep issue. I think there might have been a different reference to Genghis, and I didn't want to have his name twice. It was something like that. Yeah. But that is so strange, Mike, that that is the detail that is in your head right now. Well, is it strange but wrong? Am I no, focusing no. on the wrong thing? I'm not chastising you. Right. I'm just fascinated. I mean, this is, a, this is a memoir about writing. So when you rewrote, yeah. I was wondering if you wanted to correct some things, if some things in the original seemed too New Yorker, but in the memoir, no. you could write in your own voice. In fact, other than your very sharp catch of the... <laughs> Jangus to Kubla, I don't think anything is different. I mean, I think that because, you know, an essay is a condensed, like it's like a bouillon cube you've condensed down. And then I sort of expanded it and made a whole big pot of soup, right? Yeah. So I didn't want to have everything condensed thematically into that one chapter where the actual Mongolia of it all happens. So other things got moved to other places. I wasn't trying to make it less New Yorkery. Yeah. Is it more personal than most everything else you've ever written? Well, I wouldn't say it's more personal than the memoir. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the memoir and that piece, Thanksgiving in Mongolia, are more or less the only first person that, you know, I've spent 20 years writing about other people. Yeah, exa- which was exactly my point. So yeah. it's probably hard for you to say that over the course of, you know, uh, whatever, 200-page memoir. Uh-huh. That, oh, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Just because of volume, it's rare. That's that- exactly right. You know, Leslie Jameson said a lot of very nice things about the New York Times, but she also said, you know, in the book, some parts are better than others. And I think she's right. Yeah. You know, I think she's absolutely right. I think when you're working on a book-length thing, I mean, that's not true. Plenty of people have written perfect books. Plenty of people have where it's like, it's just perfect. Yes, but if you ask Dostoevsky, was Crime and Punishment perfect? I mean, I don't know his personality, but I'm led to believe he would say no. There were a couple passages. Like, for instance, I could have changed Genghis to Kubla. Well, maybe not specifically. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but it's like with the book, I'm happy with it. Like, it's, it's what I meant to say. It turned out the way I wanted it to. It's blah, blah, blah. The essay really was more like, I didn't even think about it, just sort of came out of my fingers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was much more, it was like a singular writing experience. I've never had an experience like that before where something just came out and it was done. It was just done. 
And how'd you make the calculation to, you know, pitch it as something for the world to see in The New Yorker? Well, do you have kids? Two. Okay. So I'm sure you've looked at them from time to time. I'm sure you look at them and you're like, oh my God, you're amazing. Look at your face. I made it. Like, it looks like a human's face and it's so pretty. You know, I did that during the 10 minutes I was somebody's mother, right? Like, I looked at my baby and thought, oh my God, I made a person, you know? And no one else but me saw him alive ever. And writing about it and then publishing it in some ways felt like, I don't know, it was really important to me to say to whoever cared to read, this person existed. This happened. This was here. This life happened, you know? So I felt that, you know, I felt proud of my offspring, if I mean, if that makes sense, which I would imagine it would to anyone who's had children and is just sort of like, holy smoke, you're a person. Yeah. And then there was another thing, which was that I felt that this was the most intense transformative experience of my life. And not too many women are like, oh, yeah, I also gave birth and watched my baby die in a hotel in Mongolia. That's pretty singular. But a lot of women lose babies. And it is a very, very intense transformative experience that nobody talks about. And I felt like, you know what? As a matter of feminism, I am going to publish this. This is important. This is not less worthy of being written about than any of the stuff that happens to men. This is a big, big thing that happens in the lives of half the human population. Why would I not publish this? Given that you're public and this was public, I'm going to guess that you got an enormous amount of sympathy, but you probably dealt with some horrible comments too after talking about it? You'd be surprised by how little, like right when it came out, sort of within a few hours of the essay coming out, I got, I think, two or three different emails saying, you deserve what happened to you. You're a murderer. You know, you went to Mongolia when you were pregnant. So of course your baby died, which is of course not scientifically the way it works. Like I've had, believe me, I've talked to enough doctors about this at this point. Like, you know, if you have a placental abruption, which is means, which is what I had, which means your placenta is detaching from your uterus. Once that's happening, you're a little bit out of luck. It's it's very unlikely that's going to reach a good end anywhere in the world. You know, whatever. But I got a couple emails like that. You know, within the first few hours, weirdly, and then there's been very little else. I mean, it's been overwhelmingly. Emails and letters and now women coming to my events to tell me about their stories. Like I was at this event in um, California a week or two ago and this woman raised her hand after my reading and she said, you know, I've got three children who are alive. I lost four babies. I'm 77 and I still miss every one of them. And that's what it's like. I mean, I think, you know, you don't walk around, I don't walk around about to cry all the time anymore. Like it's, you know, I'm through, I went through grief. I lived in grief and now it's sort of this little thing that lives in me, like a little piece of my heart for that baby. But I got what she was saying. It's never like, oh yeah, that's fine. It's always like you lost that kid. Yeah. And since, and since humans are humans, just think about other places in the world where you don't expect a baby to live to uh-huh. three years old or through 
most of human history or almost all of the founding fathers yeah. who went through this and, and their and their wives, the founding mothers. I mean, it was just such a, I don't know, it, it recasts history and the rest of the world when you consider that. Well, you know, Ali Wong, the comedian, does this really funny thing in her stand-up special, Baby Cobra, where she's talking about speaking to her mother about a miscarriage that she, Ali, had. And her mother, who's from Vietnam, said, you know, where I grew up, that was like losing a pair of shoes. Like everyone. But she, what she did not mean was it was like losing a pair of shoes. You don't care. She meant like it happened all the time. And it still happens all the time. When I'm at these readings and these women come, I can see them the minute I look at them. I'm like, that girl just had a miscarriage. And sure enough, I have yet to be wrong. I have yet to look at one of those women and have them and have them not come up to me afterwards and burst into tears and say, I just lost a baby at 19 weeks. I just lost a baby at 25 weeks. I mean, there's this particular look. The woman just looks blown apart. That's the tell. Yeah. Yeah. And she's nodding in a way that others aren't. She's not laughing at the funny parts. <sighs> Maybe she's laughing. I just like, I, I just... I just can see it. I just can see it when I see it. Like, it's just this particular kind of, like, bereft look. And they look bewildered. Because that's the other thing. I mean, you feel insane. Because nobody talks about this. So you think, like, am I out of my mind that I'm in this much pain? That I'm grieving this hard? You know, it was just a miscarriage. It happens all the time. Why do I feel... Like that Euripides quote, you know, there's what greater grief can there be for mortals than to see their children dead? Why do I feel like that when the world is like, what, you had a miscarriage, big deal? Or not even that. I mean, I have to tell you, Ariel, your journalism, first of all, I love the essay. I love your journalism. I was a little hesitant to do the book because I was like, I don't know. I know she's putting it out there. It feels personal. Yeah. Um, I will, I will talk parenting with anyone, any, any husband, uh, wife, man or woman, but this stuff, you put it out there and yet, I don't know, maybe I should, you know, let her to it alone. I don't know how comfortable I feel. Well, look at you. Aren't you, aren't you a big boy? You did it. Here we are. (laughs) I I only did it because uh, my producer, Mary, was like, you must interview her. Well, well, thank you. And I'm very proud of you. You're doing it, aren't you? Oh yeah. that's what I've done it again. I've turned I've turned around the woman who lost a baby. So she compliments me <laughs> on how nice I am. <laughs> You've done it again. This is a habit of yours. Amazing. This is what you do. Yeah. Did you did you realize through writing? You must have made realizations through writing. Did I realize wait, I don't understand the question. Did In I have... attempting to put words to the experience uh-huh. you came to realizations? I suppose. I mean, it's hard to it's funny. You'd think that would be something I would just be like, yeah, of course. But I don't know if I really look at it that way. I mean, it's hard to explain. I feel like when I'm writing, my agenda is not therapeutic for myself. It's like the reader comes first. I think like, okay, if I were reading this, would this make sense? Would I need to hear this here? Would I find this persuasive? Would I feel like this was vivid and I felt present in the experience? Would I feel like this was laying it on too th- You know what I mean? I'm always thinking about it as a piece of writing and not a piece of therapy. Like, this isn't a journal. This is a, it's a piece of work. 
Now, you say women who come to your uh, reading, you see in, you, you're able to sense when some of them have lost a child, but there's so many other groups that could come to your yeah. readings, either fans of good prose or fans of your journalism, or the other things you've been through are a breakup and, you know, you had a partner who struggled with substance abuse. I mean, a lot of these things. You know who else it resonates for, which I love that I, I, I sort of wasn't expecting and I love it, is young people who are sort of trying to get their career together. Mm -hmm. Like that feeling of being in your 20s and being like, who am I? What should I be? What do I do? How do I get there? That age person. Oh, it's so, I love it. I love meeting young people, especially young women, but young guys too who are like, oh, your book was resonant for me because I'm in that phase of life where I'm trying to figure out, I'm obsessed with becoming who who I'm meant to be or whatever. I like talking to them. That makes me happy. All right. I guess I got one last total rando question. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. The This is of the Kublai Khan Genghis Khan. I, no, I, I'm expecting as much. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the original essay is titled Thanksgiving in Mongolia, right? Uh-huh. It talks about a song off Lou Reed's New York. Another song off Lou Reed's New York is Christmas in February about a guy in Vietnam. And I wondered if that had any resonance for you with the title, if that was a total coincidence. If the title, The Rules Do Not Apply. No, no, no. The title of the essay, Thanksgiving in Mongolia. Did that have to do with Christmas? In Fe- oh, I finally get it. I, I mean, maybe at some like super deep subconscious level, but to me, really, it was, it was Thanksgiving while yeah. I was there. And the point of the essay was trying to say that as excruciating as that experience was, as, as much as it left me so sad, I, I could barely breathe. I did want to give thanks that I had the experience of being somebody's mother for 10 minutes, you know? I mean, that's all I'm ever going to get of that, of, of having, of being the mother of someone who came out of my body. Yeah. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, that, I, there's a lot of things in my life where if you said, oh, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're not going to remember that you ever saw the Taj Mahal, I'd say, well, that's too bad. But if you sort of said to me, I'm going to erase from your head the 10 minutes you, you were a mother, I couldn't live with it. I would not be able to live with that. Well, thank you so much. I think that was such a good answer to a dumb question about Christmas in February. I don't know what it I'm going to do. It was not a dumb question. So basically, you're saying you titled the essay Thanksgiving in Mongolia because it was Thanksgiving, you were in Mongolia, and also you were giving thanks. There <laughs> is that. Yeah. There are those things, yes. But it was a perfectly great question. The rules do not apply. Ariel Levy, a memoir. Thank you for your time, Ariel. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. These news outlets, they just don't understand the direction of Trump's broken promises. They know he broke them. They could keep score, said this, but is doing that instead. Sometimes, though, it seems like he's a moderate. Sometimes he's not. Look at the wall. Look at the refugee ban. A grand theory has proved elusive. Whatever the cause, the president's policy shifts have people across the political spectrum asking, what does it all mean? It's not elusive. Let me tell you what Trump is doing. He's doing what's easiest. That's what he's always done. He has two things he has to live up to. Two things that everyone will remember that he promised. One, the Muslim ban to the wall. And when you really get down into the Muslim ban, he only said for a short time. So it only has to be in place for 120 days. And then he'll say, all right, we got some extreme vetting in place and we're out of there. The wall, he needs an actual wall. The Mexican pay for it thing, he'll find a way to lie about that. So that's really all he has to do. Beyond that, all the promises... 
It was just all bullshit to get the crowds riled up. Bullshit doesn't mean it was untrue necessarily. Bullshit means true, untrue. No one gives a damn. We were told by Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare that this administration was incompetence tempered by malevolence. But it's all baked in the fiery cauldron of mendaciousness. Learning curve? This is another popular explanation. Maybe he's learning on the job. He didn't care about facts then. He doesn't care about facts now. He's a very simple organism. He knows what's easy and what's hard. Let's take China and currency manipulation, right? So his innovation as a candidate was that he was the first candidate entirely untethered to the truth. Even though we say most politicians lie, they generally know what the truth is. And you could tell by their words, you could tell by the wiggle room they build into the words that they're building escape hatches. Not Trump. I don't think he knew. He might have known. He definitely didn't care. This was his entire calculation. I say China is killing us. And the crowd roars. Therefore, I keep saying, China is killing us. Currency manipulator. And the crowd likes that. So I keep saying that. Oh, but Mr. Trump, China has not actually been trying to devalue their currency for quite some time. You know, if you take a look at this chart. Thank you, Paul Krugman. This is like fact-checking Gallagher's hammer when he smashes the melon. Crowd like melon smash. That's all you need to know. Crowd like melon smash crowd get melon smash. The Eagles are going to play Hotel California. They're going to play it. If you fact check them, uh, Mr. Henley, it says you could stab it with their steely knives, but you can't kill the beast. We've done some extra experiments. Turns out the beast can be. It doesn't matter. The crowd wants Hotel California. They want China as a currency manipulator. So that's what the crowd is going to get. That was the easiest thing to do. Now that he's president, actually calling China a currency manipulator and all that that implies, that is not an easy thing to do. Or Hillary, lock her up. A fantastically easy thing to do to get the crowd riled up. But when you're actually president, actually locking her up, you got to fire Comey. You got to get some guy in who will actually prosecute her. You're going to just drive everyone crazy. It's going to overtake everything. Screw it. Screw it or China currency manipulator. Do you know how they got Peter Navarro? I read this article in Vanity Fair. Maybe you saw it too. So Trump was out there and uh, here, I'll read from the Vanity Fair article. At one point during the campaign, when Trump wanted to speak more substantively, a word I'm sure he uses, about China, he gave Kushner, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, secretary of everything, a summary of his views and then asked him to do some research. All right, let me just interrupt and say what the summary of his views is. China is killing us. That is the summary of his views. Now, with this in mind, here's the next sentence in the Vanity Fair piece. Kushner simply went to Amazon, where he was struck by the title of one book, Death by China, co-authored by Peter Navarro. Today, by the way, Peter Navarro is assistant to the president, director of trade and industrial policy, and the director of the White House National Trade Council, because he wrote a book called Death by China, and Trump was saying, China killing us. Just think, the first choice for this position was probably the guy who wrote the different earlier edition of Death by China, but that book was about how old plates used to use lead in the paint and that would gradually kill people who use the plates. It's very embarrassing when they ask the China plate guy to be part of the campaign. Jared, you didn't read the book. Well, I mean, there wasn't a look inside option, Mr. President, Mr. Dad, 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 Dad. Jared, gotta do better. 
Jared, being a billionaire, next signs up for Amazon Prime, gets the book like in a day or two, vets Navarro sufficiently. He's in the campaign. By the way, Trump seems to like Peter Navarro. Who knows? Maybe he'd also like the next guy on the list when Jared entered Death by China into Amazon. It's uh, Yuan Wu Ping, the director of From China with Death. An early classic from Action Master, Wen Wu Ping, Crouching Tiger, Matrix, Drunken Master. Two rogues go from swindle to scheme every chance they get. I like that, swindle to scheme. Fortunately, they are masters of kung fu and they use it more often than they would like. Actually, that's pretty resonant. And it's not like the lead china plate guy didn't have an impact on Trump. Beautiful plates, Mar-a-Lago will only use new antique plates. Beautiful new plates. So calling China currency manipulator, it just, if he were to do it, becomes this pain in the ass that he can't shake. You got to go to like the World Court or the World Trade Organization or something he doesn't want to do. So he chooses the easiest thing. He doesn't do it. And what are the costs? I mean, Ann Coulter feels betrayed. That's why I have Kellyanne. She neutralizes Ann Coulter. Kelly, Ann Coulter, sisters. Don't you think... That saying, China's a currency manipulator, China cheats, I'm going to label them this, I'm going to bring them in front of the WTO. Don't you think every candidate would have liked to say that? But they stopped themselves because, well, it's not true. Trump's brilliance is, who cares if it's true? Malevolence tempered by incompetence, baked in the context of mendaciousness. Remember RFK said, there are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. Trump's like this, except he never really asked. He just operated on the why not. He just said it. China sucks. Here's how. Currency manipulator. Uh, Mr. President, you can't say that. Why not just did crowd roared. And now it's time to backtrack because in the campaign, a dumb statement about dumb policies is one thing. Here are the consequences of a campaign statement that's wild and unfocused. It was Hillary Clinton that she should get an award from them as the founder of ISIS. That's what it was. That's what it was. Here's the consequence of a presidential policy that's off base and ill-considered. After three weeks, the Trump administration handed another defeat in domestic policy matters. Trump doesn't have any beliefs. He's just done with the headache. What does Bannon and Breitbart give him? We keep saying, oh, by hiring Bannon, he's really giving in to his worst demons. We make it sound easy. But, you know, dismantling the deep state, that's hard work. Taking down globalists, that's hard work. Just hire some Goldman Sachs guys. Say you're going to drain the swamp. Go with your friend Gary from Goldman Sachs. Every once in a while, figure out what armaments you could drop to give yourself a little happy juice of morphine drip of approval. You'll be fine. It might not be the best strategy, but damn it, it is the easiest. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Chris Berube produced The Gist. I'm lucky to have them because I originally was going to hire Gene Corman and Norman Jewison because they are listed as producers of Fist, the Sylvester Stallone film, when I looked it up on the IMDb. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He originally didn't take the job when it was offered because he put it through Google and said, why would I want to be the executive producer of Stale Podcasts? misspellings can do that. Andy Bowers, Chief Content Officer of the Panoply Network. I don't want to tip our hand about the new slate of shows for spring 2017, but Andy has acquired a gigantic podcast silo, this podcast casing that he trotted out in his parade. It's very impressive. That's all I'm saying. The gist, if you found us after your search 
for gifts on Amazon. Thank you for trying us out. And would you like to serve as Director of Trade and Industrial Policy? Oomperu um, dapperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.